everyone. Welcome back to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. In today's episode, we are exploring Jewish themes, trends, and ideas in season one of Star Trek Picard. And our guest will be Aaron Rotenberg of Toronto's Annex Shul. Hi, Chava. Hi. How are you doing, Josh? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good in this quarantine time. What's your life been like in the last month? I'm writing my thesis, so it sucks. <laughs> How was your Passover? This was a, a Passover unlike all others. Yeah, it was actually really nice. We did a Zoom Seder with my parents. I live in Toronto. They live in Montreal. So we did a little long distance Seder. How about you, Josh? Different, but I think we made the best we could of it. We're isolating with some other family members. So for one Seder, we were, although it's not the full experience that we always have, I think we were able to have a meaningful family Seder. And we didn't do like a full Zoom one, but we brought my Bubby in on FaceTime for a few points here and there. And then the second night, we had just a Zoom Seder with my in-laws, which was very short because I have a 14-month-old baby and her attention span for a Zoom Seder is pretty short. But I think we all had a lot of fun and we were able to make the most of it. It was a Passover unlike all others. Still with family, uh, physically distant doesn't mean socially distant. Right. So Star Trek Picard. Yeah. What'd you think? I really liked it overall. Me too. I think we can get into a lot of we liked this and we didn't like this. But overall, I was impressed and relieved because in something like that, bringing back such an iconic character, there's a real possibility of screwing something up. Uh, For sure. Much in the way, you know, some of the next gen films did. I really enjoyed it. And it actually fixed, you know, there was like a sour taste in my mouth left from how terrible nemesis ended and it actually repaired mm -hmm. some of that okay so i'm gonna recap star trek picard's uh season one for you but if you have not seen it it is extremely important that you know that i'm going to spoil everything so spoiler alert now you can't come back and say that i didn't tell you we're gonna spoil it all so if you haven't seen it watch it before you come listen to this and this spoiler alert remains in effect for the entire episode. Just hit pause and come back when the whole season's done. Starting off the series, John Luke Picard is a retired admiral, and he's just starting to show symptoms of his neurologically degenerative illness, and he's living on a vineyard in France. He gives an interview where he indicates that his resignation from Starfleet was because of their abandonment of the Romulans, and the Romulans were in danger because their star was going supernova. He was leading a Starfleet rescue team to bring Romulans off of Romulus and settle them in other parts of the galaxy. The rescue team, though, is attacked by rogue synthetics. So synthetics are like androids or uh, any type of artificial intelligent life form. And it ignites Mars's stratosphere. So this leads to a ban on synthetics in the Federation. This whole synth attack on Mars is a plot by this crazy Romulan super assassin team called the Jatvash, and they super hate synths. So this is kind of like throwing the synths under the bus, getting the Federation to ban them. And all of this caused Picard to leave Starfleet because he thought it was not right of them to abandon the Romulans in this situation. So we're introduced to a new character, Dodge, and her boyfriend is killed by Romulan assassins. And she discovers during this killing that she has these crazy abilities that she wasn't aware of. And and she kills all of these assassins. So she sees JL on TV in like a vision. And so she goes to him for help with this whole predicament where she's like, whoa, I have.
have all these crazy abilities. And JL recognizes her from a painting that Data had made many, many years ago, where she resembles the person that was portrayed in the painting, and Data named it Daughter. Picard is immediately attached to this girl because he thinks that she's Data's daughter. Data died several years before this while trying to protect Picard. Unfortunately, Picard and Daj are later attacked again by these Romulan assassins, and Daj is killed. Picard makes it his mission to save her sister. So she has a twin sister, Soji, and that basically sets up the whole plot for the show. Soji is another synthetic, but she doesn't know it. Picard is hoping to save her from the Jatvash before they assassinate her. Why is the Jatvash so angry? Because they think that these synth sisters are going to destroy all organic life because they've seen it in a prophecy. Soji is working on this destroyed Borg cube and she has no idea that she's a synthetic and Jean-Luc Picard is like running to save her. So she's lured in by one of the Romulan assassins. She falls in love with him and then he like tries to kill her. And then JL and his team save her or find her. In the attack, she realizes that she has super capabilities. So it's kind of like does. She wakes up and she also figures out and reveals where her home planet is. So where she was born because she reveals the home synth planet. Now they have to race the Romulans to this planet to protect it so that the Romulans don't destroy all of the synthetic life on it because it's like the root of the synths they make it there and then the synths decide instead of listening to picard they're going to fight back and summon crazy other demon synths from a different part of the universe at the end of the day jl uses his diplomacy skills to talk to soji and convince her out of it and he saves the day and then jl dies but then he's he's given life again because his consciousness is implanted into an empty synth body, which is called a golem. And that's pretty much it. Quite a season. I tried to summarize it short, and then I realized there are too many things. So many small stories explored with Seven of Nine and Bajazel and going to, to seek refuge with Troy and Riker, uh, which was a, a lovely little episode. Yeah. So before we get into all the Jewish stuff, what'd you think of the season? What'd you like and what didn't you like? I thought it was super compelling. It had Picard in this amazing role. It really explored his personality and his character. I really liked that. I also thought that they were really asking tough questions about AI. The entire concept of the show was really interesting. The whole discussion of artificial intelligence and like the dangers of it, which Star Trek has always done, was not quite as a big deal as it was in, in this season. What about you? Did you like the storyline and everything? I think I mostly liked it. I'm so hesitant to even criticize the show at all because there is out on the internet this, I don't know, new Star Trek hating industrial complex of just countless toxic communities, or I don't even know if it's coming from bots or real people, but it's like really gross out there. Um, oh. And so there were things about the show that I really liked. There were things about the show that kind of rubbed me the wrong way and that I thought could have been done a little bit better. But I think on the whole, I really enjoyed it. And and, you mm -hmm. know, the first season of any new show is always a little tricky as you're finding your ground and getting to know your main cast. I thought that the middle episodes of the series I really, really enjoyed. Dealing with Seven of Nine, going to the Borg Cube, the episode with Riker and Troy, uh, everything that was going on with mm -hmm. Hugh and the XBs. I thought there were problems with the opening of the show and with the close of the show. Interesting. I had some problems with the middle. <laughs> <laughs> 
but I still liked it overall. <laughs> I loved Picard on the vineyard. I thought, what a change this was. The last time we saw Picard, he was in this conflict, well, not really with Romulans, but with the Remans on a Romulan warbird fighting against them. And our first understanding of Picard is here he is with Laris and Jaban, who were incredible. I think I would watch just the Laris and Jaban show. And here are two <laughs> ex-Tal Shiar agents who've thrown their lot in life in with Jean-Luc Picard because they feel that they owe him a debt. Yeah, I love that. I felt the show was really grounded in place. We really got to know the cube as a place, the synth planet as a place, Chateau Picard, mm-hmm. even La Serena, uh, even though you know I wasn't crazy about the ship design itself. I think that I liked the way it sort of became their home, that Picard had his office in it. The last two episodes didn't really do it for me. I loved the way it, it actually ended with uh, Soji making a moral decision Mm-hmm. And not to summon them. And, and I just thought that interaction between Picard and the copy of Data or whatever version of Data that was waiting in the machine was just so beautiful. And I loved the use of Blue Skies. Actually, the, the actress who plays Daj and Soji was the one singing that. I didn't pick that up uh, until I read yeah. it online after, but really beautiful. Same. And, and calls back to, of course, like Data singing it in Nemesis and before trying to sing it it after. But I thought there were parts of those last two that didn't quite work. Like the synth plan seemed a little bit hokey. I really thought the standoff was poorly done. There's a YouTube channel called Space Doc, and he talks about like what makes a great space battle and what makes a bad space battle. His three top ones, I know there are three that you're familiar with. It's the Battle of the Mutara Nebula in Wrath of Khan, Pegasus saving Galactica in the rescue off of New Caprica, you know, when Galactica slams down into the ground and they've got to rescue the colonists. And the third is the ongoing combat from the Expanse. In all three of these, there's themes that are similar and in a lot of Star Trek, but really missing from Picard that draw dramatic tension, which is like use few ships rather than countless identical ships. Have the stakes <laughs> be really clear instead of just like kind of vague. I would recommend watching his video, but I felt like a little bit how I was let down by the finale of season two of Discovery, a season that I otherwise really enjoyed. It's like, ugh, here we go again. A million identical ships on one side and a million identical ships on the other side, none of which I like really care that strongly about um i mm-hmm. did like when they were fighting the flowers <laughs> that oh i, that I loved not that seen before what a cool idea <laughs> and of course ultimately like there isn't a battle it's just a standoff but that was something that that i felt could have been improved but on the whole i really liked the season there's always a temptation with something like that to just tilt entirely into nostalgia and they didn't do that they didn't have every single next gen cast member showing up ah Mm -hmm. do you remember this time when we were at this planet it was laid on a little lighter yeah i thought it was a perfect balance actually of Mm -hmm. old and new characters i thought seven of nine was a great 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 choice to bring in perfect yeah just first of all jerry ryan is amazing Mm -hmm. i think she's like one of the most compelling characters from that show seven of nine is from voyager But also the Borg connection to Picard. I loved that they suggest that she's maybe gay or bi. I think that Seven of Nine was already a gay icon. And yeah, just lean into that. Uh, I think it it like suited her really well. I think one of the faults Voyager had, and we talked about it a little bit in our Yom Kippur episode, was that Seven of Nine didn't 
advance and become sort of more human and more grounded. And this showed us a seven mm -hmm. of nine some 20 years after Voyager's return to the Alpha Quadrant, who has really been shaped by her experiences. And like, they haven't all been positive, but she's gone through some shit and she's changed as a consequence of it. Mm -hmm. What do you think of some of the new characters? I liked Rafi and I liked Rios. But I absolutely hated Agnes. Oh, like, really? Worst. I hated her. I thought she was super annoying. Also, I did not understand why they had to make a love story. What was that? That was terrible. They didn't build it up at all. It wasn't even a love story. It was like a friends with benefits story. Yeah, but it was like not even that. They weren't even friends. It was just like, oh, actually... Apparently, we really wanted to have sex with each other, and then they did. It was totally not built up at all. So that was probably my least favorite thing about the series, that they kind of had that going on, and they pretended as if they had built it into the characters well, but they really didn't. But I did like Rios, I think, the most of the new characters. I also liked Elnor a lot. With Gerardi, at first she seemed like this plucky character, kind of like Tilly. They really surprised me when she killed Maddox, and I thought, wow, they're going to go like full tilt into making her either a villain or someone who, for like very justified reasons that we'll find out about, is opposing them. And I was kind of let down that they backed out of that by making it like, I was controlled by a mind meld. Like, yeah. magic made me do it. <laughs> I think she would have been more interesting as a villain, especially since that would be so against type for Alison Pill, who I think is a great performer. I was a fan of the newsroom, which I think she was really good in. Mm-hmm. I, I love Elnor. I love Elnor. I think he's adorable. I can't remember. Was he on the ship at the end? Yeah, he was on the ship at the end. <laughs> okay, phew. So that's exciting. The crew at the end, and I think will be the crew for next season, is Picard, Seven, Gerardi, Rios, Rafi, Elnor, and Soji. Yeah, there was a little bit there where Elnor was in trouble. But I really like him. I thought he was such a good character. And um, I really liked how they gave him that connection to Picard from the start as well. And mm -hmm. made him actually really pissed at Picard, which is not something that you usually see with the character because he's always just like savior amazing guy but he really failed Elnor which was something kind of new. I also think there's something to be said about the fact that people always talk about Picard as their TV dad and <laughs> Picard is also sort of Elnor's TV dad like we don't know what happened to Elnor's real father but Picard is the, the <laughs> right. father figure there for sure. The other thing I didn't like actually was I thought that they really did some good stuff with Soji's character, but then at the end, very strange. Like she was super on Picard's side. They had formed a good connection and everything. And then suddenly she's going to destroy all of humanity. Like what? Yeah, I didn't find it compelling that she would switch sides back and forth so quickly. And it might have been more interesting to use that other model, the one who like looked like Daj and yeah. and Soji, but with the, the but gold, gold android. <laughs> yeah, sort of like how Lal had when Lal was first made. Because then she mm -hmm. still could have had the appearance of the Destroyer when she was identified by the assimilated Romulan. I also was not a huge fan of the portrayal of Nerissa. So that's Narek's sister. The whole Romulanister <laughs> thing I did not find very compelling. <laughs> And her character just kind of did the same thing like a bunch of episodes in a row where she was like, come on, Narek, do something already. Do something or I'm going to kill something. Come on, do some more murdering. Yeah, she wasn't very deep. I guess it was nice to see her like get kicked in the face and fall to her death and have seven of nine beat her up. Yeah. But uh, she was a little one dimensional. And how about Commodore O? I actually, I liked that idea. I thought it was kind of interesting. I think they kind of 
shoved her in there though and made it happen too quickly though i think my general comment about it like negative comment is that it was all a little too fast to be believable which is interesting because the first four episodes go really slow in assembling the crew and then i felt like it Mm -hmm. was just like plot point plot point plot point all the way through to the end so maybe there were some pacing and spacing issues that could have been tweaked a little bit i know that originally the season was slated for nine episodes And when they shot the first two in editing, they made the first two into the first three. And I think that maybe, I don't know, it's hard to, to say for sure because you don't know what would have been left on the cutting room floor. But I think that starting the mission after the second episode probably would have given the season a more even pace. All this said, I actually did really love it. Yeah, me too. I definitely give it like an A minus and I'm super excited for next season. Me too. At the end of it, I was like, oh, wow, amazing, like very Star Trekky, and I feel warm and fuzzy inside and I can't wait for more of it. Did you tear up? <laughs> I did tear up. Yeah. In blue skies. Yeah. Yeah, me too. They, they got rough. me. <laughs> yeah. I also I can't handle like I just cannot handle Brent Spiner in general. <laughs> good can't handle just, or bad can't handle? Yeah, good can't handle. He's amazing. I yeah. just love him. So this season had some serious, serious Jewish ties, I think more than any other season of Star Trek. Wow, you really think that? I think so, yeah. So take it away. Tell us why. Well, to start with, of the five creators of the show, Michael Shabon, Akiva Goldsman, Alex Kurtzman, Kristen Beyer, and of course, Patrick Stewart. I know that at least three of them are Jewish. I, I don't know about Kirsten Beyer. Uh, Akiva Goldsman and uh, Alex Kurtzman are Jewish, and Michael Shabon obviously is not just Jewish, but he is, you know, a famed author of Jewish American fiction. He wrote two, really two of my favorite books, both of which have really, really powerful Jewish themes. The Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is sort of a science fiction book. It's set in an alternate version of the 1990s where Israel doesn't exist and three million Jewish refugees who escaped the Holocaust are living in a Yiddish-speaking town in Sitka, Alaska. Despite that bizarre setting, the actual plot of it is a murder mystery, and it's an incredible book. He also wrote The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is really about the golden age of comics in the United States, but it's done through the lens of these two cousins, two young Jews. One's from New York, one escapes Czechoslovakia right as the Nazis are marching in, and the golem also is a theme throughout The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. A really great book. I recommend both of them. While Star Trek has had lots of people at the senior level in writing and production who are Jewish, I can't think of anyone who's sort of like a Michael Shabon figure who's an iconic writer of Jewish fiction put in such a prominent role. Mm -hmm. Throughout the first season, there are several different Jewish historical figures and characters. We were going to go through some of them because they were used in interesting ways and probably connected in a way how Shabon writes putting in Jewish stuff everywhere. (laughs) Okay, Josh, do you want to take it away with our J-coded character from episode two? Yeah, so this is like one of the most heavily Jewish-coded characters we've seen in Star Trek in a long time. This was Dr. Moritz Benayoun. He's a new character, but he's described as an old friend of Jean-Luc Picard's, his doctor from the Stargazer, which is the ship that Picard captained 
prior to the Enterprise. I was a little bit bummed that the doctor who came to see him wasn't one Beverly Crusher, but um, hopefully they're sitting <laughs> on that one for, for a future episode. Picard calls in an old favor. He needs a doctor to certify him as fit for duty. Ben Ayun is willing to certify him as fit for duty, but tells him pretty ominously that he's detected a defect in Picard's brain and that his days are numbered. This, of course, calls back to the, the next-gen finale, All Good Things, where Eremotic Syndrome was present in the future, Picard, and also in the version of the present that then was reset at the end of whatever Q was doing. So it was never totally clear if Picard had the defect or not, but I think it was a really smart choice to have that present. So why do we think Dr. Moritz Benayoun is Jewish-coded? Aside from his name. <laughs> yeah, so the, <laughs> the name is a real giveaway. Moritz, a pretty common Jewish given name, even though it's just like a spin on, on Morris or Maurice. But Benayoun is a traditional North African Jewish name, like pretty common in among Jews from Morocco or Algeria, other places in North Africa. There's a famous uh, Israeli soccer player, Yossi Benayoun. He's played by David Pamer, who is Jewish and looking through his IMDb, he like very and very commonly playing Jews in film and television. David Pamer portrays Dr. Maritz Benayoun with like a real East Coast American Jewish affect that really pinged my Judar. I don't think we were the only ones who picked up on it either because uh, the Times of Israel ran an article about how there was a Jewish character in this episode. And like, really? That says a little something about, hey, look, there's one. <laughs> yeah, I find the Times of Israel really does that. It's just like, oh, we found another Jew. <laughs> <laughs> this one was a blink and you miss it reference. So La Serena, which is Rios's ship, it is designated as a Kaplan F-17 speed freighter. I don't know if Michael Chabon or whoever wrote that line was intending it to refer to like any specific person, but Kaplan, of course, is like a pretty common Jewish surname. It usually indicates that one is a Kohen, so like of the ancient priestly class. Lots of famous Kaplans out there, but the most famous one I can think of is Mordechai Kaplan, who was the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism. Also, if you ever had a bat mitzvah, you can thank uh, Mordechai Kaplan for that because he is the one who popularized and brought to North America the ritual of the bat mitzvah. Mm, wow. Chava, did you find any? My favorite one was Planet Vashti. The second that came up, I like yes. looked at Adam and I was like, what? Come on. What a what a point for Star Trek and the Jews. <laughs> planet Vashti was a, a planet where many of the Romulan refugees were brought to in a combined effort with Picard and these Romulan warrior nuns, part of this group called the Kowat Milat. I really, really love that we now know about Romulan warrior nuns. Yeah, I know. They were... Uh... They're pretty amazing. Now, though, because the Federation kind of abandoned the whole refugee Romulan plan, Planet Vashti is a pretty impoverished place. And it's pretty sad when uh, Picard goes to visit there. They're not really happy to see him. But what's really interesting about this reference to Vashti is who Vashti is So, and how deeply she's connected to the Kawat Milat. Vashti is a character that comes from the Book of Esther. So it's... um. The scroll that Jews read on the holiday called Purim. It's the one where we dress up as different characters. And get really drunk. The book, Vashti is the wife of the king of Persia, who's called Ahasuerus. And she is a pretty badass woman. The word Vashti comes from an old Persian word, and it means excellent woman or best woman. And her history is interpreted by the Midrash. So she's descended from Nebuchadnezzar, 
um, who is the king of Babylon, who in Jewish history destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and is considered one of the most horrible people uh, that had ever persecuted the Jews. Portrayal by the rabbis, though, is not positive at all. And she's kind of seen as wicked. Why do we care? Her husband, Achashverosh, is having a feast at the beginning of the Book of Esther. And it's uh, a week-long feast, and it's like with all of his noble buddies. And then on the seventh day, the king orders her to come to their party with her crown on to show her beauty and like dance for them. This is interpreted by the rabbis to indicate that she was meant to be naked. So he wanted her to come with only her crown on and dance naked in front of his friends. So she refuses, and she's actually put to death because of it, uh, because of her refusal. And basically, this has made her a feminist icon. The midrash around her is pretty sexist, actually. So, like, when I say she's a feminist icon, that's quite a bit later in the analysis of the Book of Esther. The midrash around her is sexist, possibly racist, but basically stating that the reason that she wouldn't dance naked in front of the king's friends was not because she was modest, which is considered a positive Jewish womanly trait, right? So they didn't want to portray her in this positive light. Basically, they said that it's because she was afflicted and ugly because of something underneath her clothes. And some of the ideas around it are that she has a tail or she was turned into like her anatomy was actually male or that she had leprosy or something like that. Anyway, though, she's super cool in my eyes and in many feminist eyes. And she gets a bad rap. Um, actually, she has an interesting part in her story and she is clearly standing up for herself and she's defiant. Seems kind of obvious to me that in Star Trek, they use this Vashti name to describe this planet where these feminist nun warriors are um, working to maintain the peace and they're strong and defiant. They are reminiscent of Vashti. Esther is one of those books where it's just so clear to me that the rabbis totally, totally, totally missed the mark. Yeah, it's terrible, honestly. The, the Book of Esther, like, you can pick it up and read it now, and it is still, like, a fairly compelling little novella. Mm -hmm. But Esther was never written to be, like, liturgical text or anything like that. It is a really, really cutting satire of Jews in the Persian period who continued to live in Persia instead of returning to Israel and of the Persian system around them. And the rabbis who mm -hmm. were writing, like, 600 or so years later just, like, completely, completely miss that because like that cultural relevance i guess like vanished from history and they didn't have the the tools in like literature or archaeology to piece that together and so they go in some like really wacky directions and frankly i think the modern feminist take on vashti is a lot closer to the original intention of the authors of that text than anything about like tales or her wickedness because of her being descended from Nebuchadnezzar that the rabbis come up with. Yeah, I totally agree. It also like if you just read the text, it's like clearly all just decided by rabbis that she's evil. Yeah, like, it, there's no indication of that really in the in the text. Yeah. And what do you think of the co-op Malat? I thought they were very cool. I really liked them. I like that the Romulan warriors, a lot of them are like powerful women in general. Mm -hmm. It seemed like most of the leading women in the Romulan cause actually were women. So O was, and then Nerissa, the warrior nuns. And that's something that goes back to the original series in the Enterprise incident. Unfortunately, she doesn't get a name, but the villain of the Romulan warbird that they steal the cloaking device from, uh, she's a super compelling character, and Spock kind of like admits to her that uh, even though we were trying to trick you, I find you like super compelling. 
<laughs> yeah, there's a history of strong Romulan women characters, and I was really happy to see that that continued in uh, in Picard and was amplified in Picard. Remember the Tasha Yar one too? She was mm-hmm. also oh, awesome. Sila. Yeah, they should bring back Sila. Yeah, I'd be into that. So I've got a few more that I found. The first was a pretty quick hit, the planet Vergesen. This was where some really tragic and gruesome stuff went down. So planet Vergesen was seen in the cold open of episode five, Stardust City Rag. It's a planet in the Hypatia system, and it's where Bejazel had her base dismembering the XBs. We see Seven of Nine infiltrate that base trying to rescue Icheb, but it's too mm-hmm. late and she's forced to, to, I guess, mercy kill Icheb, which was a really tough scene, although I thought really, really effective in giving strong motivation to Seven of Nine. Mm-hmm. The word Vergessen is very similar to Yiddish, also the German, but let's assume the Yiddish, Vergassen, which means forgotten. But it's also connected to the word Vergessenish, which means oblivion. And so, you know, I see a few different ways that this could go. Like, obviously, there's oblivion because uh, Icheb is killed and little part of seven dies there Uh, Mm -hmm. but i think there's something about how like the xbs and their plight have been forgotten and people have been allowed to just run wild and and, you know kidnap them to sell their body parts wow i didn't think of that but yeah it's really nice what do you think of Icheb going? Uh, I could not watch that scene. It was rough. I, I'm very squeamish about eye stuff, and it, it was, I was just not able to do it. But it was it was heartbreaking to see Seven in that. And I think when we say it was hard to watch, we mean because it was so effective in demonstrating her trauma. Definitely yeah. not in the chorus of online hate who are for some reason mad at them for killing Icheb, or maybe it was just an excuse for, again, these like army of toxic fans to have something to complain about. Another one I picked up on was the Wallenberg-class starships. Oh, yeah. These are mentioned in episode four, Absolute Candor, which is an episode written by Michael Shabon. Wallenberg is name-dropped in a scene where Picard sees a Romulans-only sign on a bar on the planet Vashti, uh, but enters anyway, prompting a confrontation with a former Romulan senator. And the senator relates to Picard that he remembers him bringing, quote, those great big Wallenberg-class transports. Michael Shabon on his Instagram said that the Wallenberg class are the tug ships that we actually saw a couple of times in the flashbacks to the synth attacks above Utopia Planitia fleet yards on Mars. It's a pretty interesting design. There's kind of two pieces. The top uh, is like very Starfleet looking uh, with a unique design, a saucer that has some chunks taken out of it with a very standard bridge module and two nacelles sitting on top of like a big giant transport ship. And so I think the design speaks well to the narrative function, which was that these were ships built really, really quickly for the purpose of transporting Romulans out of Romulan space and towards safety. Mm-hmm. Who was Wallenberg? So Raoul Wallenberg was a Swedish diplomat, and he is a person who saved tens of thousands of Jews' lives during the Holocaust. I think it might be helpful to refresh uh, memory on the history a little bit. So Sweden was neutral in World War II, and Hungary was an Axis power with a fascist government that had imposed its own anti-Jewish laws similar to the Nuremberg laws. And Raoul Wallenberg was a Swedish diplomat who had been posted in Hungary. Now, in 1944, Hungary entered a separate peace with the United States and the Soviet Union, and that led Germany to invade and occupy Hungary. And immediately upon their arrival, and again, this is 44, so it's pretty late in the war, Germany immediately began activating their 
death machine that was rounding up and deporting the Jews to death camps. Hungary was a place where the Nazis' plan of extermination was perhaps most effective. Within the first 12 weeks of their arrival in Hungary, some 435,000 Jews were deported and killed, which accounted for more than half of Hungary's Jews. And Raoul Wallenberg basically did everything he could to save people's lives during this. He gave out some 50,000 Swedish diplomatic passports to Hungarian Jews, which could provide opportunities for people to escape. He acquired some 32 buildings in Budapest and had them declared extraterritorially Swedish, which meant they were protected and given diplomatic immunity, and he was able to hide around 10,000 Jews in these buildings. And he did this all at great personal risk. He ran an organization of over 300 people who were secretly rescuing Jews, and many of the people in that organization were captured and killed by Hungarian fascist militias or by the Nazis. After the war, Wallenberg himself was killed. Hungary was taken over effectively by the Soviet Union, and the Soviets detained Wallenberg under suspicions of espionage. We don't know exactly what his fate was, but he likely died in the custody of the KGB sometime around 1947. Wallenberg Mm -hmm. is honored at Yad Vashem as uh, Righteous Among the Nations, and here in Canada, uh, January 17th is designated as Raoul Wallenberg Commemorative Day. And here is an interesting place where we know that the intention of the writers was not just to name drop, but actually draw a thematic tie here. So Michael Shabon said in an interview with Wired, quote, by naming this class of rescue ships that is designed to save people's lives in large numbers from huge destruction, Starfleet was presumably deliberately invoking the memory of a righteous man and the work that he did to help people. I love it. It's been common throughout the history of Star Trek for ship classes to be named after something with a connection to the writers. So, for example, Brandon Braga named the Bozeman class starship, which is where he's from, Bozeman, Montana. Also, not so coincidentally, the birthplace of Zephram Cochran. But it's interesting to see Michael Shabon both connect it to his Jewishness, but also point it in a way that really serves a narrative purpose. The next connection that we made was actually between the Jewish golem and the golem in the last couple episodes of Star Trek Picard. So the golem um, shows up as a body that Dr. Sung had made to take in uh, human consciousness. And so we we really discuss it with our Reb in Reb Alert. So we're going to go to Reb Alert right now. Delay that order, number one. Red Alert. <laughs> So we are at Reb Alert. Welcome Aaron Rotenberg to Star Trek and the Jews. Aaron Rotenberg is the spiritual leader of the Annex Shul, an egalitarian non-denominational Jewish space in downtown Toronto that primarily, well, at least when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, works out of the Wolfon Center, which is the Toronto Hillel House. Aaron is also an artist. He makes films that explore Jewish themes and have recently screened in the Toronto Jewish Film Festival, the UK Jewish Film Festival, and others. And he's a Jewish educator of many types. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on Star Trek and the Jews. A pleasure. It's really exciting for me to be here. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. In preparation for being here, I just listened to the first three episodes, and I did do my homework of watching the first season of Picard. I'm grateful for the encouragement to jump into this universe. Aaron, we're so glad to have you. What's your Star Trek background? I don't have such a long Star Trek background. When I would flip through the channels in my teenage years. The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine would often be on, but I couldn't really get into it. I admit I was more of a Star Wars fan. That's uh, fair. But I don't mix them up. 
not like the guest last week, not to, not to compare, not to compare, but actually recently what happened is uh, I heard from Josh that you guys are putting together this, this podcast. So I had like Star Trek in mind. I live in a shared house with my spouse, Jenny, and also my housemate, Francesca, who's big into Star Trek. And she was starting to watch Picard. And I said, oh, this is a good time for me to actually get into it. All the flaws and conflict of Picard, I was very drawn in. So I'd say I'm a recent watcher. And now with this podcast, my listening and inspiration is also on the incline. That's so nice of you to say. Thanks for pulling me out of it. I hope that's the case for many other listeners too. You might like Star Trek Discovery if you really liked Picard. feel like they have more similar vibe. We wanted to talk to you about the Golem. And the Golem, of course, is something that we get name dropped in this season of Star Trek Picard. Why don't I ask you, Aaron, what does Golem mean and, and where does the word Golem come from? Golem has this sense of being this mute beast magical protector, but the word Golem appears only once in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible. So it's what's known as a hapax legomenon, that it only appears once in the entire canon. Words like that are a little bit tricky to know what they actually mean. So it appears in the book of Psalms, referring to this phase that the psalmist is talking about of being not fully formed. There's some sense of formlessness, of newness. Klein Etymological Dictionary thinks that it might be connected to the root of golel, which means to roll. It appears again in the Mishnah, in Pirkeavot. And there's this comparisons of, of a seven characteristics of a chacham, of a wise person, and seven characteristics of a golem, which is, I guess in this case, the opposite of a wise, a wise person. Again, the translation from Safaria is a clod, which also feels like it has this nice ring of like a clod of earth. Mm-hmm. Even for me, my actual familiarity with the word golem comes from living in Israel and one of the staples of my diet there, and even here, is tahina of sesame paste. And unmixed raw sesame paste is called tahina golmit. Really? So it's raw, unformed tahina. Oh, that's great. So I think of that every time I mix together tahina, think about creating a golem in my in my kitchen. So how did this initial idea of golem as an unformed thing become the popular conception of the golem, the the clay man or the animate created from the inanimate? Really the golem is a mode of Jewish stories. And there's like many different stories that I think take this golem archetype mode. And from me looking around, the earliest that I found was that stories of a golem of sorts, not named a golem, named Gever, something man or human-like, appear in the Talmud in uh, Sanhedrin. Well, there's actually two different stories. Uh, One story where there's some rabbis who are hanging out before Shabbat and they're like, oh, we're hungry. Let's use the Sefer Yitzirah, doesn't explain what that is, this book of creation, and make ourselves a a little calf, and we'll eat that before Shabbat. These sense of stories around create, and then also rabbis are creating gevers, like human forms using some sort of Hebrew words or some sort of some sort of spell-like things. And there's also, and this is probably the earlier connection, that the word golem actually, the proof text from that v- verse from Psalms that we mentioned, uh, is used in explaining by the rabbis in the Talmud the story of the creation of Adam to explain how dust from the four corners of the earth was taken together. And the original golem, I think, is the creation of the first first human. Also created from the formless, from mud or the earth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of bothers me that it's kind of related to rabbis having magical 
abilities that they can perform spells and create almost life. It seems a bit anti-Jewish. Yeah. And actually like looking in that Talmud page is also, it is in this mode of like some uncertainty about like necromancy and bringing things back from the dead. And there is uncertainty around if it's a good thing or not. So I think that you're, you're hitting on something that maybe it's not great. And actually I think like a lot of the stories of, of golems from other places in Jewish literature, there's like a certain kind of horror or uneasiness in those stories as well. Mm-hmm. Harkening back to that uh, Pirkei Avot Mishnah section, it feels like it stands in distinction to this concept of the Chacham, which is like a more comfortable mode for Jewish tradition, right? Mm-hmm. It's to be wise and thoughtful, not a force of brute strength and magic. And so how then do we understand the sort of medieval Jewish literary idea of the golem? So when I was looking through a little bit, I actually also was excited to talk about the golem because my family on my uh, maternal grandfather's side has the tradition of being descendants of uh, the Maharal of Prague. Wow, really? So, uh, yes. I was in preparation for this. I was trying to ask my mom and my aunt, like, tell me details. Can you, like, give me something? That's like, so specific? interesting. And they're just like, no, it's the family traditions, what your grandfather said. Would you tell us about your uh, your forefather, the Maharal of Prague? <laughs> about my, my dear ancestor, the Maharal of Prague. <laughs> was the rabbi in Prague in the 16th century and was known to be a learned scholar that was well-respected. And when you're asking about the medieval period, I'm sort of questioning a little bit because actually the Maharal never, in any of his writings, never talks about a golem in the many generations after. Nobody ever actually associates him specifically with a golem. But what seems to make sense to me is there was a resurgence of a interest in German folk telling and stories. And then at some point, people made the story or connected the story to the famous rabbi of Prague. And that actually sort of all along, there's many, many stories of various people in the same same mode telling stories about golems. Like we know that there's stories of Helm, where there's sort of like humorous stories, but there's also a story of the golem of Helm. So can you tell us the story of the Maharal with the golem specifically, like what is the lore surrounding that? So let me tell it to you, because really there's also many different versions and tellings of the story where like the golem falls in love in some versions or sometimes goes on a rampage or gets deactivated on Shabbats. There's like all these different details that appear in different stories. So I'll tell it in, in one way. The Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Lo of Prague, was known throughout the land to be a really wise and learned rabbi, so much so that he got elevated to the very respected post of being the rabbi of Prague. When he got there, he was a little bit horrified by this rumor about the Jewish community of the blood libel that the Jews were killing children to make matzah. It's a classic anti-Semitic trope. But Maharal, because he knew many languages and was very wise in not just Jewish texts and sources, but also was familiar with secular learning, got to know the king, King Rudolf of Bohemia, and started to respect Rabbi Lowe. But the king was also close to a Christian priest, Thaddeus, who really had it out for the Jews and who was always trying to make harsher restrictions on the Jewish community in Prague. So there was this battle uh, that was always going on between Thaddeus, who was saying bad things about the Jews to the king, and Rabbi Yehuda, who was trying to protect the Jews. One night, the Maharal had a dream, and he asked for 
God's assistance to find a way to defeat Thaddeus and this scourge of the blood libel. And Maharel received the message that he needed to use the Hebrew words from the Sefer Yitzira, from the Book of Creation, to create a golem. So the next day, the Maharal took his son-in-law and also his prime student, and they went out to the river, and they brought together mud and formed it in the shape of a person. And Rabbi Yehuda knew that he was born under the sign of air, and his son-in-law was born under the sign of fire, and his student was born under the sign of earth. And they needed to use all of their different elemental powers to bring life to the earth. So they circled around the form seven times and recited the right words. And the form arose out of the riverbed and was a, a fearsome sight to behold. But uh, Rabbi Lowe put clothes on him and gave him the nickname of Yosef and made him the shamash of the synagogue. You might know the word from Hanukkah candles that the shamash is the helper candle that helps light the other ones. In a synagogue, the shamash is the person who just helps out with various tasks. So Joseph, the dressed up shamash golem, sat in the corner, looked out for everybody, but was quiet because the ability to speak only comes from, from God and people cannot give that, give that power. But Yosef, the golem, could hear very well, could hear what was happening all across town. And then it happened, similar to this year, that Easter and Passover coincided. This was a precarious time for the Jews because it's also when the blood libel would come out. So the Maharal told the golem to monitor the streets. And on his patrol, there was a, a local person that had somebody in his circle had died. And he was taking the, the body to place it in a Jewish house to say, oh, these Jews killed that person. But the golem who was dressed up as a, another Christian in the city of Prague stopped that person, told the authorities, and stopped that blood libel from happening. Eventually, news got back to King Rudolph, who like saw that really these people were making up these stories. It was just as Rabbi Lowe had said. And he got really upset, and he told Thaddeus that he must stop spreading the blood libel and that he wouldn't hear this lie anymore. And then once that happened, Rabbi Lowe, the Maharal, saw that his community was safe, that he could put the golem to rest in the attic, that his son-in-law and prize student, and he circled seven times the opposite direction around the golem up in the attic of the synagogue, and the life drained out of the golem, and they hit him under the old discarded sudorim and papers and prayer books where the golem still remains until he needs to be brought back out to protect the Jewish people. Dum dum dum. <laughs> so um, I've actually been okay, to the the shul there the, with the golem in the attic. Did you search around and find? They don't let you in, anything? unfortunately. Um, uh. But it is a huge tourist attraction. It's called the Alta Shul or Old New Synagogue. Yeah. And it, it's the oldest synagogue in Europe that's still active. And it's I it's pretty been. amazing inside because of its medieval architecture. It's uh, got these really tall arching ceilings. I actually went on Shabbat, so I went for services. And so I saw parts of the shul that were not open for visitation. But of course, I couldn't go in the main sanctuary because I'm a woman. So mm. I was in the side room, which is where... The women and children were during the services. And it was actually amazing the way that they're separated. A huge five foot thick wall between the women and the men. And there are these huge tunnel windows 
so that you can see like a foot by foot square what's going on in the main sanctuary kind of projects into the room because the way these tunnels are made is they like open up to the room. So the sound would travel? Yeah. You would hear what was going on, but you couldn't really see very much, which is exactly, I guess, what tunnels were for. That was a little bit of a letdown, actually, just because yeah, that um, sounds rough. the uh, main sanctuary is very beautiful with like old structures for the bima. It's kind of sad, actually, because so the, the shul was pretty full for Shabbat. Um, there were a lot of seemingly orthodox Jews that were there, but it's very heavily protected. So in order to get in, there was a security guard there. And he asked me what this week's Parsha was. And I was like, I wouldn't know that (laughs) on any week. Like I do actually occasionally go to Shul. So he kind of believed me after that because I was like, I, I don't know. Uh, There are very few Jews left in Prague now. The community was one of the oldest in Europe, and now there's something like 2,000 Jews there. But the culture left behind is huge. Like, they have so many different synagogues, and they're all downtown. It seems to me that there's different archetypes of the golem story in Jewish literature. You have the golem portrayed as the hero, and the golem sometimes portrayed as the villain, as this automaton that goes on a, a violent spree or sometimes even a killing spree and then needs to be restrained by the rabbi who created it perhaps in hubris. Mm-hmm. That actually seems very familiar to me as a as a viewer of Star Trek because it's a lot like how I think Star Trek portrays artificial intelligence which uh, of course many people have connected to the golem in general where you know we have heroes like data but we also see the the capacity for harm within artificial intelligence and for it to go beyond the intentions of its creators and need to be reined in uh, so how do you, how have you seen that tension play out in the mythology of the golem so the thing that feels like it comes up for me is this and which also maybe feels like it diverts from some of the framing around some of the questions in Star Trek, is that it feels to me like there are often stories about strength, and especially physical strength, and maybe fantasies around having like unlimited strength. What's clear is like wisdom is like very strongly set, that maybe sort of in distinction to that. Actually, the golems are not so smart compared to maybe uh, artificial life forms who've like at least my impression is that they're like they really have like logic and a certain kind of intelligence down pat and that irrespective of how much knowledge or intelligence they have that data is a person rather than just an automaton or also i really liked the framing that you had the other week josh of data being like but salam elohim like also trying to capture some of those qualities around curiosity and patience doesn't seem like any of these rabbis who are making the golem are trying to create a golem that also has curiosity and the potential for emotion. They want something to protect them. The fantasy and the telling that I gave is that they want protection from the blood libel. They want to make sure that the physical threats can be warded off using some sort of specialized knowledge to bring power and strength when, when it's needed and to be able to take it away when it's done. In the finale of season one of Star Trek Picard, Agnes Gerardi and Alton Soong place the consciousness of Jean-Luc Picard inside what they call a golem. And when I first saw it, that really kind of mm-hmm. irked me because I, I guess I had in my mind the literary Jewish golem. But thinking about your explanation of like the original uh, meaning of it, both in, in the Tanakh and the Mishnah, the formlessness of it really seems to fit a lot more. When we first see that golem, it's this 
uh, formless, translucent lump. Lump, right? Uh, mm. And they breathe form into that and and mold it into the new Picard they want to create. And yeah, to me that does feel like it fits. That the goal is lacking, right? Those essential qualities of yeah, the, the personhood that's not just the physical piece. We don't really know what the golem is made of either. It's like what is uh, what is the clear golem in in Star Trek? Josh, did you catch that? No, I, I think they left it completely ambiguous. Uh, Interesting, but like, is he could be organic? The tone to me was that whatever it was was as of yet without form, almost like how you describe the references to Adam in the in the Talmud, created first as a golem, formlessly, and then having life breathed into it. Yeah, and it is interesting thinking now that myth around Adam is also one created through dust. An interesting Toronto connection. One of the main sources that we have for the Golem story, sort of as it's preserved now, comes from Rabbi Udal Rosenberg, who publishes this uh, pamphlet in 1909 called Niflaot HaMaharal, right? The Wonders of the Maharal. And what it claims to be is an eyewitness account from the Maharal's son-in-law. And I think like sort of over time, people are like, oh, this is a made up story. But the person who made up the story and who recorded it, this Rabbi Udal Rosenberg, actually moved to Toronto in 1913 to be the rabbi at Beth Jacob Synagogue, which used wow. to be in Kensington Market. And he also, wow. he, he's the person who started the Eitz Chaim schools, which still are around in Toronto. And then he moved to Montreal and he had a child. And his child's child was Mordechai Richler. Oh, wow. Famous That is an Canadian incredible author. connection. So, yeah. That really is. Yeah. I also felt like, felt like that was fun to see. Well, Aaron, much like the link between the Maharal of Prague and Mordechai Richler, there is a link between you and this podcast, which is that oh. uh, over, over the winter, I was taking a class that you were teaching. Uh, it was on Jewish film through an incredible program called Lishma, which is uh, a Jewish learning project for people in their 20s and 30s in Toronto. You had all of us in your class work on these little projects where each week we would make a short Jewish film based on some of the themes that we had explored. I think Chava and I had already been talking about Star Trek and the Jews and maybe getting a project like this together. But those assignments that you handed out really gave me a kick of if you want to make something creative, just go do it. And I I think that in a lot of ways, you are definitely owed some credit for us creating this podcast. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being our guest on Rebel Alert. It's really been a pleasure to have you. Yeah, I'm so pleased that I was able to contribute in some small way to the inspiration behind this this great project, which now continues to inspire me. Aaron, where could people learn a little bit more about uh, Annex Shul or any other projects that uh, that you're involved in? Yeah, so you can find out more about Annex Shul on either our social media, on Facebook or Instagram, or on our website, annexual.com. And you also mentioned uh, Lishma, which is uh, Annexual is one of the partners in Lishma, which has an upcoming semester. There's going to be a class in medical ethics with former Rebel Alert guest Rabbi Steve Warnick. There's going to be a creative writing class with Tikva Hecht, which is going to be great. I'm going to take that. And there's also an interesting class in queer Jewish apocalypse, but that's full. So join us next time. And you can find out more about Lishma at lishma.ca. Thank you so much, Aaron. Welcome back. Welcome.
I just think that he is the kindest and most sensitive and most knowledgeable person out there. And I'm so glad that he was able to come on the show. Yeah, me too. It was so nice to meet him. He's very um, soft-spoken, modest, but knowledgeable. Aaron referenced a lot of texts there. And if you want to take a look at the primary sources, we've put together a small source sheet on Safaria. And there's a link to that in the show notes. A couple of other housekeeping notes. Are you by any chance from Montreal, Chava? Oh, Josh, how could you not know? I am from Montreal. And being a Montrealer, do you have any like weird connections to William Shatner? I do not personally have connections to William Shatner, but I do know people related to William Shatner. He's a Montreal icon. So if you're from Montreal, send us your connection to William Shatner. This is how you can do it. Take out your phone and use the voice recording app. Make a little file, 30 to 60 seconds. Hey, William Shatner's uncle was my Bubby's hairdresser. Send it in an email to StarTrekAndTheJews at gmail.com. One other point of housekeeping. We are on Twitter, and if you want to follow us there, we're at StarJews. You'll see lots of pictures of my dog, Babka. He's cute. So... More broadly than like individual references here and there, do you think there were Jewish themes at the core of season one of Picard? Definitely. I think one of the first ones that is striking is the portrayal of refugees and people that have no state. The Romulans and the XBs, they're both refugees. They're stateless. They have nowhere to go. and They have nowhere that is theirs. And this is something that used to be true about the Jewish people. I don't really think it is anymore. It's definitely something that is throughout Jewish history, though. Jewish history has been defined by diaspora, and it's sort of a peculiarity of history that we're living in a time when there is a Jewish state, but that was not the case for most of the previous 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. I think there's also something to, like, the not just that they left their homeworld, but that it is destroyed. Mm -hmm. And that was true for the Jews, that there was an expulsion, but there was also destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And so I think there's really that link of diaspora, and we see in a lot of little hints, whether it's Laris and Jabon working on Picard's vineyard, or Rafi's son's partner being a Romulan, that like Romulans are really now integrating in with their former foe. And that makes me think a lot of the expulsion in Babylon, which of course is, you know, some 2,600 years ago. You had this destruction followed very quickly by an integration But of course, the idea of Jews as refugees is something that hits a lot closer to home than than ancient history and makes me think of Jews during and after the Second World War. Yeah, definitely. You very rarely meet um, a Jewish person that is not pretty closely connected with a refugee in their family. In particular, statelessness was something that affected some of my extended family members. These were cousins of my great-grandparents who were living in DP camps, who were unable to go back to their homes, and who couldn't get papers to go anywhere. And eventually, after a number of years, some settled in the United States and others in Israel. But this idea of being without a home is something that feels very personal. Yeah. And I think that's shown both of some Romulans and also of the XBs. Yeah, I definitely have a similar type of familial connection. Like my father's parents are survivors and they came to Montreal with nothing. They lived in a DP camp for a bit. And my father's first language is Yiddish, so it's very closely connected. My grandparents didn't speak English. Um, They were refugees. I totally see what you're coming from. It's uh, very close to home for both of us. 
and many other Jews as well. I was kind of disappointed that the finale of Picard didn't wrap up the XBs, especially since Hugh had made such a big deal of needing to protect them, and then Seven of Nine seemed to take up the mantle, but then at the end of the show, it's like Seven of Nine is on La Serena, and what happened to the XBs? So I investigated, and apparently there was a scene shot where the XBs decide to integrate on the synth planet and form a community cooperatively with the synths. So you would have purely synthetic life forms and cyborgs working together to create this new society. And I don't know why it was cut. I haven't seen the scene, but I wish they would have wrapped that up. That would have been great. Maybe it's just one of those gems waiting for us in the (laughs) Blu-ray. Yeah, can't wait. Chava, are there Jewish themes we should explore connected to Picard's depiction of AI? Oh, definitely. I think that that could be an entire episode, so we should save it. And I think that it would be really good to have Dr. Adam be our Reb on that. Reb Dr. Adam. I like the sound of that. Okay. That would be really fun because he's also professionally doing AI and is a Jew. So that qualifies him for this. Chava, I think that brings us close to the end of today's episode. But first, did you find an Afikoman? Picard and Soji, when they escaped through the board cube, through that spatial trajector gateway thing that was invented by the Sicarians. So the Sicarians, that sounds really similar to the Sicari I. They were Jews that were actually living around Masada, and they were trying to escape the Romans. And when they realized that the Romans were there... At Masada, they were coming up to take over. They were facing impossible odds. Rather than surrender, they decided to commit suicide. So there's like a mass suicide at the top of Masada. And there's like a room there of it. I remember visiting it. I feel like a spatial trajector would have really come in handy there. Yeah, so a spatial trajector would have really come in handy. But the opposite thing happens here. Picard and Soji, instead of giving up against the overwhelming odds, they use the Sicarian technology and move on and live to fight another day. I love it. Josh? Yes? Tell me your Afi Komen. I found an Afi Komen, but I'm going to have to tell a story first. Okay, I'm ready. It's the story of the oven of Achnai. It comes from the Talmud in Bava Metzia 59. In this story, there's a dispute between the rabbis of the Sanhedrin as to whether or not a particular oven is kosher. Rabbi Eliezer says that it's kosher, and the rest of the rabbis, led by Rabban Gamliel, the president of the Sanhedrin, say that it's not kosher. And they're really getting into it, and Rabbi Eliezer says, if my opinion is correct, let this carob tree prove it. And the carob tree tree uproots itself and starts dancing around and Robin Gamaliel is like uh, we make decisions here based on Torah, not dancing trees. And so Rabbi El- Eliezer says, if my opinion is correct, let this stream prove it. And the stream reverses itself going in the opposite direction. And Rabban Gamliel is like, the direction that a body of water is moving is not relevant to the matter of law that we're discussing. And so Rabbi Eliezer says, if the oven is kosher, let the walls of this study hall prove it. And the walls of the study hall that all these rabbis are in starts caving in. But Rabbi Joshua is like, hey, walls, how dare you? There are uh, rabbis deliberating matters of Torah here. How dare you interrupt us? So the walls, out of respect, they neither fall over nor go upright. They just sort of like hang diagonal. And so Rabbi Eliezer is getting really, really frustrated. So he says, if I I'm right, let heaven prove it. And a voice from heaven says, Rabbi Eliezer is right about the oven, or, you know, something to that effect. Rabbi Joshua says, like, no, I don't care what a voice said. The Torah is not in heaven. 
the Torah is here with us. The idea there is once Torah is given, it's up to us fallible humans to interpret and apply it and hopefully do it as best we can. And that uh, matters of Jewish law are not to be decided based on magic tricks or miracles. I think that uh, this really connects with the approach that Picard took to the admonition. All these Romulans are taking these incredibly drastic steps because of this prophecy that they've heard. They're willing to kill, they're even willing to destroy a fleet being built to save refugees from their own homeworld in order to prevent the admonition from happening. But Picard takes a look at this prophecy and says like, eh, I don't know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but you, Soji, can make your own decision. You don't have to be the destroyer just because some spooky Romulan lady said that you were. You're a person, you decide what to do, what's right and what's wrong here. And it's not that he throws it out altogether, but he approaches it with the same attitude of like, once it's with us, we have to make our own decisions using the tools that we have. And the the tools that Picard have are scientific inquiry, belief and trust in his friends, respect and tolerance for others, and ultimately, it's those values that are able to save them. What an afikoman. I love it. Chava, who found the actual afikoman in your Seder? Oh, um, me. <laughs> who hid the afikoman? <laughs> Adam hid it. He basically put it in the table. How about you? Did your uh, 14-month-old daughter find it? Yes, she did. It wasn't very well hidden. It was on top of her toy bus, which is exactly the first thing that she goes to play with when she goes into her play area. So (laughs) it was not a long Afikoman search. To be fair, she didn't know that she was supposed to look for it, so we had to make it pretty easy to find. That's great. That's it for this episode of Star Trek and the Jews. Thank you so much for joining us. Your Hebrew school homework for next month is to watch the Next Generation episodes Journey's End and Sub Rosa. We've got one good one and one bad one for you there. Thank you to Aaron Rotenberg, our guest on Rev Alert. Thank you to Dr. Adam Snyderman for arranging our opening fanfare. Our end credit music is Desert of the Lost Souls by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under Creative Commons 3.0. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review us in whatever app you use to listen. It's really helpful and the main way people find out about us. Stay safe, Space Jews. We'll see you next month. I don't know if you've met Chava before, but I do think you know Chava's partner, who's Adam Snyderman. Uh, Dr. Adam? <laughs> <laughs>